when I moved to LA, I didn't tell anybody I used to, I, that I was an athlete. I um, because I, I would always hear stories of like people thinking that uh, former athletes were like entitled, and I also think it's, it's like when you think of rap, like NBA players trying to be like rappers or entertain. You know, everybody was like, ah, oh, this dude, like he, he trying to put out a mixtape, like for real. Welcome to Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I'm your host, Andrew Hawkins, but you can call me Hawk. Now, as you know, I'm here to guide y'all through the extended versions of the Needing Dough video series. But today we're switching it up a bit because this is the second episode of our new mini series, Branching Out. On Branching Out, I sit down with athletes who have moved on from their sports careers to create new paths and find all sorts of success. And our guest today is someone who has made a lot happen after his playing career. Now, before we get started with this conversation, featuring former NFL wide receiver and current Hollywood director Matthew Cherry, make sure you subscribe to Needing Dough on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's fast, free, and it helps support the show. All right, let's get to it. I am amped up to welcome Matthew Cherry to this episode of Branching Out. Matthew has had an unconventional journey that's fitting for this special series of episodes. He played football for the majority of his life and he was so good that he earned a Division I scholarship to the University of Akron. After he graduated, Matt played in the NFL for a couple years. He bounced around quite a bit playing for teams like the Jaguars and the Ravens. But it was after his playing career, when he moved to LA in his mid-20s, that he really started to carve out his own path. In this conversation, which took place at the Chase Tower in Matthew's hometown of Chicago, Illinois, you'll hear him talk about why he left the NFL, why he kept his football playing past a secret in LA, and how a random tweet from Jordan Peele changed his entire life. So Matt, first off, thank you for joining me here on Branching Out, man. I'm extremely excited to talk to you, and I mean it. It's funny, when we were coming up with this concept for this podcast, you were one of the guys we had in mind. And that's not, I'm not just saying, I don't say that to every guest. You were literally one of the guys we had on the deck to say, yo, we have to figure out a platform to tell the stories of the Matthew Cherry, so we appreciate it. No, thanks so much. Glad of course. So you are a Chicago native, like I mentioned. Shout out to Chicago. <laughs> shout out, shout out. Now tell me what that experience was like growing up here in Chicago. Yeah, you know, Chicago's amazing. Um, live in L.A. now, so the weather's a little better. <laughs> As y'all know, you know, you can get all four seasons in a day in Chicago. But, uh, no, it was, it was a great experience. You know, um, my uh, parents, they kept me involved in sports a lot. Um, you know, I have a sister who was also in the similar to me. She was uh, very, very much into sports. And uh, now she's, like, on, gone on to become, like, this famous painter. And, um, you know, I just think our household was just really – one that helped to just really motivate you and kind of allow you to just create your own destiny. You know, they, they really were very supportive in whatever it is that we wanted to do. Um, and I remember even when I was in high school, uh, I was a part of like all these clubs, despite being a three-sport athlete. You know, I was a part of the radio club. I was a part of the uh, African-American Union. There was only five of us. You know, I went to Loyola Academy, so no. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, it, it was just a really cool experience. And, um, you know, I, anytime I can get back, you know, it's a, it's a blessing. And I always try to stop at Harold's when I do come back. <laughs> so now for somebody who's not from Chicago, the only dose of Chicago I get is on TV and right. what I read. How is that uh, aligned or doesn't or not aligned with the experience you had? I mean, you know, 
one one thing that I would really would hope, um, particularly in my business, I'm in, you know, in film, is um, I think we could do a better job of just kind of depicting the complexities of the city. You know, I think uh, this is kind of the first thing that people think about when they try to, you know, talk about you know gun violence and they try to talk about all these different things. You know, that's kind of a, it, happening in a lot of cities, and you know, that isn't just the thing that just defines Chicago. You know, we're many things, and. Uh, you know, I just think uh, the more we can do to show diversity in the images of the city, the better. So you said you come from a creative household. Your sister's a painter. Yeah. Um, and it was something that your parents, like, really instilled in you? Yeah. I mean, it was just crazy. Like, we, we both really was just all about playing sports. And uh, we ended up, you know, after college, just uh, getting into the arts. Yeah. So now when I was young, again, I mean, like a lot of people that grow up in the inner city, you have friends that go one path. Right. And you go your path. And if I'm being completely transparent, I mean, there were times, right, <laughs> that you contemplate which path to go down. Right. And sports was something for me that I could draw to to mm -hmm. be like, oh, this is what's going to keep me going on this direction and not go the other right. way. Was it a similar experience for you? Yeah. You know, I, I think um, with a lot of athletes, you know, you, you, you always come to that kind of fork in the road. You know, you're growing up. Uh, you know, you, you, you're, you're in these situations to where, you know, your, your path is kind of placed in front of you. Now, are you going to kind of run in the streets or are you going to, you know, be kind of playing, you know, doing whatever it is that you want to do after school, whether that be being an athlete, getting into the arts, et cetera. And, um, yeah, you know, I kind of found myself at a, you know, crossroad like that growing up. And, you know, luckily I was in a situation to where, you know, because of, you know, God-given ability and, you know, my parents uh, kind of instilling a great work ethic, you know, uh, they didn't really press me too hard to go go to that other path. But, um, you know, I think it's something that we all are faced with, you know, when we grow up. It's like, all right, you, you, you have kind of like the fast, easy route here, or you have one that's a little bit more difficult and one that may not be as defined. And, um, you know, luckily I was in a situation where I was able to uh, choose the right path. So tell me this, you're... You grew up playing sports. At what age did you kind of start to realize you had probably a little bit more ability than the people you were around? Um, so are you guys familiar, familiar with that uh, stadium, Thillens? It's like a kind of famous baseball park in, in Chicago, like if you play Pop Warner baseball. Okay. So, uh, so basically there's this like stadium in, in Chicago where uh, they have like this, uh, this Brinks truck kind of cardboard cutout over the scoreboard. And... Um, when I was, uh, I believe I was like nine or ten years old, uh, we, we, I played at Gompers Park. Uh, I played football at Portage Park. And um, we would always play our last game at uh, this, this big stadium. And it was just this great thing where, you know, the whole city came out to support. And um, I ended up hitting the truck when I was like nine years old. And it was a thing where, like, only at the time, only like four people had done it. The other three were like these, you know, adults that were like playing in like, you know, policemen, like softball leagues or whatever. So... That, that was probably the first time I was like, man, maybe I could, maybe I could do you something were nine? with this. Yeah, I was nine, yeah. Nine years old. So yeah. what happened when you hit the truck? Man, it was like the natural, man. Like, like I, I hit a light. It was crazy. Like, I, I, had a, I hit the scoreboard, then it, that ricocheted and hit a light. The light started, like, exploding like fireworks. I just remember, like, running in slow motion, man. It was dope. <laughs> so was, that, was there a prize that came along with that? Yeah, yeah. It was like this uh, savings bond. It was like a $5,000 savings bond, and... Uh, I never saw it. Uh, I'm sure oh, I went really? to rent. I'm sure I went to the mortgage or something, but uh, it was <laughs> cool at the time. And then you end up getting a full scholarship. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. They end up spending it. Yeah. So that was really your first time getting paid in sports. It was. You it made was. money that way. It was. Who, who did you rely on for, like, financial advice when you were coming up? 
Man, you know, I, it, it really was the parents, you know. Um, you know, my, my folks, as you guys know, I, I'm, I haven't been in school in a minute, but I imagine that they're not, you know, teaching uh, financial literacy in most, uh, you know, grade schools or high schools. And, um, you know, like most people, it was my parents, you know. Uh, we we, we kind of would do this thing where, you know, they even taught me about, like, the stock market and stuff. So, you know, it definitely was my family. So, all right, you hit this, this scoreboard. You get $5,000 right. bond, right? <laughs> and everyone's like, yo you're probably a legit athlete. So you end up getting recruited to high school. Yeah. So that, that in and of itself is, is crazy to me. So I grew up, and my favorite film coming up was Hoop Dreams. Yep. And it, like, literally defined a lot of my life. Like, I was like, man, that's, I wanted to be an NBA player, mm -hmm. and I only grew to 6'2", so it never happened. <laughs> but, like, watching that, th those kids were recruited from the inner city in Chicago, to go to St. John's Prep in yep. the film. And that was always crazy to me. Like, so I was always interested in hearing what that process is like recruiting a 13-year-old to come to a <laughs> high school. Yeah, I mean, you know, I went to high school at Loyola Academy. Um, you know, great school, but it's, not, not, it's never been the most diverse. Um, yeah, man, I just, uh, it was just one of those situations where I, I took part of this, uh, in this football camp at Portage Park, and um, I ended up meeting a couple coaches. You know, I was, uh, considering kind of going to one of the local schools and um you know it just worked out like it was one of those things to where it's not like they like you know hooked us up with money or like you know it wasn't like you know the stories you see in the movies where they like you know buy your mom a new car and stuff like that it was it was more just kind of um just kind of letting you know about you know their financial aid and um kind of just telling you about the school and the th big thing for me was that um you know, growing up, like I was around pretty much all minorities kind of growing up, you know, I, I never really was around a lot of white people. And, um, you know, my mother, I'll never forget, she was like, look, you know, uh, you can go, you can, you can go through this world, um, you know, thinking that this is going to be your experience. And then you're going to get into, the, you know, get a job or something. And you're going to, you know, it's going to be harder for you. And I just really wanted you to, I really want you to get in a situation where you're around all different types of people so that you just have a more um, well-rounded experience. And, uh, you know, at the time I was a little upset because I wanted to go to the local school, but, you know, it ended up working out. And, um, you know, it was just, it was a, it was a really cool experience. Yeah. I mean, do you think that that experience has helped you like yeah, on this sure. side of your life too? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think uh, just being able to, you know, what do they call it, code switching, you know what I mean? Like being able to uh, just adapt, you know, and being able to be able to move around in all different types of environments is, is definitely a skill that, uh, you know, serves you well, you know, later in life. Um, yeah. All right, so you played football there mm -hmm. and you became a star. Obviously, you're in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. So how, how did you get on the, the radar of Division One football teams? Um, so in high school, uh, it was a lot of summer camps. So I, uh, my, my high school at the time, they didn't really throw the ball a lot. I was a wide receiver. Um, and so, you know, the possibility of me getting a scholarship was kind of looking grim. And I heard about this uh, summer camp at the University of Michigan. And um, I ended up, uh, you know, paying the money, uh, going, being a part of it, and just really stood out. You know, it was, it was kind of one of the first times in my life that I – knew that I wanted to try to get a full scholarship just because I knew it was going to be harder for my parents to afford, you know, to send me to college. And I know wanting to be an athlete, like being able to have, try to work. At the time, they didn't let student athletes work either. So like I was going to be in a, this really, really weird position if I did try to walk on at a school. And so I, um, you know, I just kind of went in with this mentality, like, look, you know, I'm going to go through the summer camp. I got to ball out and um, try to win a scholarship. And that's what ended up happening. So, 
you're in college at the University of Akron. Mm -hmm. At what point did you start to think of the NFL as like a real possibility? To be honest, I never really thought of um, the NFL as a possibility going to that school because, like, at, at the time, there was only we only had like three guys that had ever made it to the NFL. Like, Jason Taylor was one, um, and there were a couple other people like way back in the day. And so, I, I never even really saw it as a possibility. You know, I, I, I kind of went into it. I, I was always very realistic with my situation. Like, you know, I, I, I was always just like, you know, I'm, I'm here on a free, full scholarship. I'm going to try to use this to get this free education. And then I'm going to go on and do what it is that I want to do in life. And um, it wasn't until like kind of my senior year that, you know, it just kind of became a real opportunity because uh, one of my uh, teammates that was um, a year older than me, he ended up getting drafted uh, to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. His name was uh, Dwight Smith. And they uh, won the Super Bowl uh, with the Buccaneers. I forget which year that was. If you can just see somebody that looks like you doing something, like it just opens up your mind in ways that you just like couldn't even believe. Like here I was at this small school, nobody had ever really made it, save for like one person 20 years prior. And I was like, oh, th that ain't gonna happen. You know, like I'm just here doing my thing. And then you see this guy, like literally just see this guy's journey, and he ends up making it. And it's just like, wow, like why can't that be me? Like I, I could do that, you know, like. You know, I could work hard and, you know, do the same things that he did. And, you know, so really seeing somebody doing it uh, that was at my same school was, was like the main thing that kind of motivated me. So you, the, the light goes off in your head. That, yeah. oh, yo, this, <laughs> is a, this is a real possibility. Yeah. How, how far into college are you? Uh, this is probably like right after my junior year. Yeah. And you get to experience what every football player experienced at some point, which is injury. Oh, yeah. Did that change your mindset at all? Yeah, it really did. Um, so I got injured uh, twice, actually. Uh, one, once, though, the first time was uh, in the middle of my junior year that ended my season. And um, I don't know, it, it was kind of the first time that uh, I guess I, I really felt like human, I guess. Um, you know, I think a lot of times when you're young, you feel invincible and that like, you can do all these crazy things and, you know, nothing bad will happen to you. And that was like the really the first time that, you know, I got a reality check. And um, it just really made me want to, you know, come back even stronger. You know, it, it, I had an injury that um, it was um, in my uh, it was in my elbow, and it was an injury that you know I remember a doctor telling me that you know I'll probably never play again, and it was one of those things that just really made me be like, look, I, I got to prove this guy wrong. You know, like I know this isn't going to be the end of the road for me. You know, at the time I wasn't even thinking about the league, but you know I just knew that that wasn't going to be where my story ended. And uh, I really just wanted to work hard to try to prove him wrong. See, that's interesting because for me, when I was also a junior, when I injured, I injured my back. And the doctor told me the same thing, like, hey, mm -hmm. you're probably not going to play football again. And I don't, I don't think I dug in as much as you did to be like, hey, I'm going to prove him wrong. To me, that was my first eye-opening experience. Like, oh, man, this, this thing could end at any second. Yeah. And I got to make sure my, my ducks are in a row yeah. that I'm not – looking with my palms up, like, what's next? Right. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say that it kind of motivated you even mm -hmm. more. Yeah. And the motivation worked. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for Because sure. you end up actually making it to the National Football League with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think um, I think that's the best part about being an athlete is just, like, you, you get very clear in setting goals. Like, okay, I'm clearly fat. Like, if you're racing somebody and you're faster than somebody, like, that's that's – 
that's that's like a fact. You know, that's not something that can be debated. If uh, you're better than somebody in whatever position it is that you're playing, you know, it's it's very concrete. You know, at, at the end of playing a game, like either some one person won, one person lost. It's like very defined, and I think that's something that really has um, served me well. Just kind of like transitioning into the entertainment business. Yeah. So you get to the NFL. And you're you're finally being paid to do something you've been doing for free mm-hmm. your entire life. What is that moment like? Man, it, it was awesome, man. Um, it was just something that uh, you know my dad was a huge uh, Bears fan, and um, you know he would sit up and watch every single game. And uh, you know to to I, I didn't I wasn't drafted, but I signed as an undrafted free agent. And to um, kind of get that call and to be there with him, it was it was a really incredible moment. And uh, you know, definitely one of the highlights of my life for sure. So, is there any financial like <laughs> at this time? You you don't really have. You've never been paid right. to play football, right? And much like I told you about my experience was, I kind of had to learn by fire. Right. Was that the situation, or did you feel like you were equipped to handle the finances that came with it? Well, luckily, uh, I didn't come into the league making a lot of money, so I. I, I um, so I was signed uh, to the active roster. And what happens is normally when you're signed, and I don't know if this has changed um, in the league r- recently, but n- normally they have about 80 guys that are in training camp. And they all, when you sign, you sign like a three-year deal with the, you know, everybody has like, all the rookies have like a minimum contract basically. I think at the time it was like 230, which sounds great. But they don't tell you about taxes being 50%. They don't tell you about, you, you know what I mean, your manager and your agent getting 5 10%. So, you know, very quickly, this money that you think is like, you think you're in the six figures, now you're not in six figures. You're like, oh, what happened to, it, it just all vanished. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, I, but I was actually on the practice squad my, my, my rookie year uh, for most of my rookie season. And so that salary was 80000 a year. Now imagine that plus the half in taxes plus the ten percent to the agent and all that other stuff. So you know, basically my rookie year, I ended up making like forty thousand. So did you feel like <laughs> a, a a pressure to kind of keep up with the people who were in the locker room who oh were god. probably making a, a ton of money? Oh my god! I mean, I'll, I'll never forget my rookie year over the summer. The what was that car? The Dodge? It wasn't the Charger. It was the one that looks like a hatchback. Magnum. Uh, the Magnum. Dodge Magnum came out. I remember the entire secondary just went out and bought this car. Like they just all wanted to have the same car. Like just one day out of on a whim. I'm like, man, like <laughs> that, that car. That car literally is more than what I make in a year. You know, being here and just like seeing stuff like that. Like I'll never forget. Like they put my parking space right in between Byron Leftwich, who was the starting quarterback at the time, and Jimmy Smith, who had like a Bentley coupe and like this new Hummer with like 26 <laughs> rims. And I'm I drive my like college car, my little. Uh, 1991 uh, uh, Chevy Camaro. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, I'm supposed to park right in between them. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, you're definitely put in a position where you're, like, trying to keep up. And, like, you know, I've seen it happen to a lot of guys to where they would kind of overspend trying to, uh, you know, keep up appearances or whatever. But, you know, and they would definitely get on you, like, if your stuff wasn't right. Like, like if you had a raggedy car or something, like, they definitely fried me many mm-hmm. occasions. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Is there anything early on in your career that you were like, that you had to learn the hard way about um, being more financially sound? Well... Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I, similar to you, I, the, the, the roasting and all that kind of did get to me. And um, <laughs> I did uh, end up buying a car that, it wasn't anything that was fancy. Like, it was like a, a Maxima, that, like a Nissan Maxima that was like the same year. But the problem is, like, when you're in the league, like, a lot, what a lot of people don't tell you is that 
when you get in the league, you only get paid from training camp till December. You're not getting paid January, February, March, April, May, mm -hmm. June, July, you know, uh, unless you're like a top athlete that's getting like a bonus for showing up to all season workouts or stuff. So even like being in a position where you think you're like being financially sound and you're buying like a, you know, like a car with a halfway decent uh, car payment, you know, you, you, I found myself in like the situation where I was like, dang, like I, I already wasn't making a lot of money in the first place. And now I got to try to figure out a way to like keep up these payments on both my apartment and my car. And, um, and it was a situation like uh, where I ended up um, after my uh, pretty much like after I like got out the league, like I was in a situation because a lot of times you end up getting cut and you end up moving around. And like there's these long periods of time when you're not getting paid. Like I ended up in a situation like where my car got repossessed. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and I've known a lot. I, I knew a lot of people that end up being like, in those type of situations. Right. And it's not through a lack of like financial planning necessarily. But I guess it is because like you're not really thinking how you, it's just it's just tricky because like in the league like one day you could sign with a team and you got all this money and then you can get cut and it's not guaranteed you know the NFL yeah. is the only league that doesn't have guaranteed contracts so they pay you up until what they paid you and at that point you could have signed a million dollar contract but you're you know, out the door yeah so that's the business side of football right so what what was your your first experience in learning what that business side of football is like firsthand um, you know, I, I, the, the thing I always took away from NFL that was like a great ex learning experience, just like transition to entertainment, was just like how political it is. You know, I think all my life I had always, um, all my life I had to fight. No. Um, <laughs> all my life I, uh, <laughs> sorry, I just, <laughs> no, all my life I, um, you know, I was just in these situations to where like I, I had to, um, you know, like it was very result oriented like okay if I work hard and I get my I improve like I'll be rewarded you know mm -hmm. and the NFL was the first time where like it wasn't about that at all like you're in a situation where everybody is good um you know they're always looking for somebody that's younger cheaper um you know more talented than you and it, it really didn't have much to do with ability at all a lot of it was like how you come into the league were you drafted high were you undrafted um what team are you on do they pass the ball a lot do they not and um, I just, that was like really the, 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 my first kind of eye awakening experience because um, I remember when I was in Jacksonville and I got cut that first time, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, like I literally was like, yeah. like I, I, I couldn't even fathom that they would cut me. You know what I mean? Because like, I felt like I was doing all the right things. I felt like I was putting in the work and it was just one of those situations to where 80 people are on a roster in the, in, the, in the summer, only 45 make the active roster. So, you know, half of them got to go. And I, and I happen to be one of those ones that had to go. All right. Now let's get back to my conversation with Matthew Cherry. So your first real experience in production and oh, yeah. on TV, is <laughs> you got cut on the show HBO Hard Knocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> my rookie year, uh, Hard Knocks was filming uh, Jacksonville that year. And yeah, like I, I think if you go back and watch some footage, you probably see me like literally they like had cameras on us like when we had to like go to our locker and grab our playbook and all that. And you didn't see it coming? No, not at all. Not, not in the least. It was one of those things too where like in that summer like, uh, you know, getting articles written about me, like the whole thing. Like I'm thinking like I'm doing a great job. But again, it was like that thing where regardless of performance and I think that's something that 
will happen to you later in life too when you're at a job. Like you may think you're killing it at work, but why is this person getting promoted? Like he barely come to work, he barely care, he don't even care about his job. Like mm-hmm. it, it's so real and it's something that just I think we all have to kind of reconcile with ourselves that sometimes it's not about ability. You know, sometimes there's like factors out there that sometimes you can't control, be that networking, be that, oh, this is this guy's like related to the boss. You know what I mean? Like it's so many things that yeah. just sometimes are outside of your control. Yeah, and the NFL is very much <laughs> built that way. So is this the first time when you got cut? Like at what point in early on in your NFL career did you start thinking about what life looked like outside of football? You know what? I, I always thought about that. Um, you know, when I was in high school, you know, like I said, I was a part of like the radio program. Um, you know, in college, I majored in radio, TV broadcast and media production. So I was always interested in stuff outside of sports. Um, actually, my junior year, I was like the music director at our like college radio station. I was like an on-air personality. I like interned. I went. To, I drove to Cleveland and I interned at like a radio station over the summer. So I was always interested in like entertainment. But um, you know, that first time being cut though, I was like, yeah, I gotta get that. I gotta get that Plan B going ASAP because like <laughs> it's real out here, you know. <laughs> okay, so as you know, this series is called Branching Out since these athletes have gone on and done extraordinary, unexpected things after their sports careers. But they've all had really defining moments in their lives where just one thing going differently would have changed everything. And for Matthew, that defining branching out moment came when he got cut in his third year in the NFL. All right. So, you, you like you said, you majored in entertainment mm-hmm. and media. Um, did you see yourself being a director? Like, was that? Nah, nah, I, I didn't. Um, I didn't see that at all. You know, all I knew was that I wanted to work in entertainment. You know, like I remember, you know, I don't know if you guys sometimes like you watch some of these TV shows. And you're like, man, like, I wonder how they make that. Or it'd be, it'd be really cool to kind of like be involved with something like that. And um, I just, uh, there was this program called Streetlights that I heard about. So, you know, I guess I'm, I might be fast forwarding in the story. But, you know, my third year in the league, I was with the Ravens. I ended up getting cut. And um, I ended up uh, injuring my shoulder again, and I ended up getting like the settlement. So it was like for like $20,000. And basically I was like, all right, bet, I'm gonna use this money to move to LA. Like that's, that's gonna be my plan. I ain't gonna spend it on nothing. This is gonna be my, my moving money. And um, I had met somebody um, around that time that lived in Los Angeles and they were a part of this program called Streetlights. And uh, Streetlights is this nonprofit organization that basically helps men and women of color um, train as production assistants. And so what production assistants do are like, you know, just kind of like all the grunt work, like picking up trash on the set, uh, taking out the director's chairs, setting them in front of the monitors, uh, getting the talent out of the trailer, stuff like that. And so I didn't really know anybody that worked in the entertainment business, but when I heard about this program, I was like, this is my in. And uh, basically I just applied to it while living in Chicago still. And when I found out that I got in, I moved to LA with that money that I had. So you get hurt. You decide to retire right then and there. Yeah, you know, I, I was 20, so, and this always sounds crazy, but, like, I was, like, 25 years old when I decided to retire. And what happens a lot of times in the NFL is, like, they retire you. Like, you, you think you're retiring, but, <laughs> you know, you just stop getting calls. So, um, and, and, and to be honest, like, I was still getting calls, but I just saw myself, like, at, at this point, I had lived in nine cities in three countries in a three-year span. I played in the CFL briefly. I was in Ottawa. I, I, NFL Europe was a thing. I lived in Hamburg, Germany. Training camp for uh, NFL Europe was in Tampa. 
you know, I was with Baltimore, Carolina, Cincinnati, and Jacksonville, and, and going back home to Chicago from time to time. And so, you know, I was just over it. You know, like, I just felt like I didn't want to be still in my 30s, living out of a suitcase, and still, like, wondering, like, where that next check was going to be coming from. And, um, you know, I just kind of reconciled that. I was like, look, you know, maybe this isn't, maybe this journey isn't for me. You know, maybe I'm not meant to be, like, a big-time player in the league. So, you know, I, I want to get into my next career sooner than later because I don't want to be, you know, in my 30s trying to figure it out like a lot of guys I see that retire end up having to do. Yeah, it's real, man. Yeah. And that mentality kind of helped catapult you into the next thing. So you moved to L.A., you decided mm -hmm. to take a P.A. job. Mm -hmm. That is like you said, the grunt work yeah. of production. Did you tell anybody you were a former player? Like, did that help you? No, no, no. I uh, when I moved to LA, I didn't tell anybody I used to, uh, that I was an athlete. I um, because I, I would always hear stories of like people thinking that uh, former athletes were like I don't know. They just had this like image of them, like entitled. I, yeah, yeah, entitled. And I also think it's, it's like when you think of rap, like NBA players trying to be like rappers or entertain. You know, everybody was like, ah, oh, this dude, like he, he trying to put out a mixtape, like for real. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I didn't want to be looked at like that. Like, oh, I'm just like a former player that's trying to like leverage that to, you know, get a foot in the door, you know, mm -hmm. and I wanted to do the work. Like, I didn't want anything to be, like, handed to me or I didn't want people to, like, look at me crazy because, like, I was picking up garbage or something. Like, I just wanted to kind of start from scratch. I really wanted to learn everything, you know, from the bottom up. And, um, yeah. You end up retiring. Uh-huh. And now you're the PA. You don't want mm -hmm. anybody to know you're a former player. You know what's funny? Recently, we went to in the US. I went to the Us premiere. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> You're at Monkey Paw. Mm -hmm. So I, I went to the Us, the premiere of the movie Us, which is a blockbuster hit. And in there, I was sitting beside Van Lathan, who oh, yeah. works at TMZ yep. and had the famous kind of battle with Kanye West, mm -hmm. right? Um, oh, God. And so we're having a conversation afterwards, like with people, and we follow each other on social. And he's like, oh, Hawk, what's up, man? You're killing it. You're doing a good job. I'm like, oh, I appreciate it, man. So somebody else is talking that we know, a mutual friend, and they referenced me playing football. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you played in the NFL? Right. And I'm like, yeah. And he thought everyone was playing a joke on him. But for me, that was like a proudest moment of my year right. that somebody <laughs> didn't know that I played in the NFL. It made me feel like I actually accomplished something. Yeah. So it's funny you say that about not wanting other people to know that you were in the league. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I, I, think other I think every league is different. You know, I think the NBA does a great job of, like, promoting, um, you know, their players kind of independently and, and – and, like really encouraging them to do stuff outside of the league. You know, the NFL at that time, and even a little bit now, like, you know, it's it's really just all about, like, us. Like, we don't want you having no side hustles. Like, you, you got to focus on this game yeah. or else. And, um, yeah. So you're done playing. Again, just I'm kind of backtracking yeah, no to no make sure we get to that point. Yeah. But you don't have the $100 million that everyone no. expects NFL players to have when they get done. Did you have to alter, like – what you your everyday habits to kind of nah, financially nah look, all i knew was the struggle you know what i mean like, <laughs> <laughs> like i was born in it molded by it you know uh, <laughs> nah you know what i mean going from college to being on the practice squad and um you know then just kind of like bouncing around from team to team like i never really was in a position where like i was balling out you know i was always in proximity to those those type of people yeah um but you know, that never really was my experience. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was real easy to humble myself because, like, I, I was nothing right. but that. Baller adjacent. <laughs> yeah, baller adjacent. That so was <laughs> what, what was your first job in Hollywood? Like, what is what was the first production you got to work on? Um, well, I, I worked on a lot of commercials, but uh, you guys remember that show Girlfriends with, like, Tracy Ellis Ross and them back mm -hmm. in the day? So I was a set PA on uh, Girlfriends, and um, it was just crazy, right? So 
you know, like I, I always, um, there's so many people that work in the industry that are so jaded. Like, like they come to work today with like a frown on their face. And I was like, man, like I get to go to work every day. I get to knock on Tracy Ross's trailer and I get to bring her to set. Like that, that was literally my job. <laughs> and I was like, this is just crazy. Like, like y'all paying me to do this? Like I would do this for free. Right. Uh, and, 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 and also just like being able to like be around it, like being around the writer's room, seeing them like write the scripts, uh, seeing directors that look like me, um, directing episodes of the show, like Debbie Allen was the director. Uh, this is like in 07. Um, you know, and, and, and I worked with Mara Brock-Akeel, and so at the time, Mara Brock-Akeel had girlfriends in the game. And so it was just a cool situation because, like, being a PA, you didn't really make much money. I think at the time, it was like maybe three, 400 a week. But, uh, and what our schedule was like, is like we would shoot three, uh, three weeks on, and then we'd do one week off. But because Mara had two shows and their stages were side by side, uh, on our off weeks for girlfriends, I'll go and work on the game. And, you know, it was just a cool experience, man. And um, a lot of, like, kind of what I'm talking about, just uh, setting up uh, the director's chairs for, like, a table read. Um, you know, somebody needed to grab a script from the office to bring it to set. You know, I'd, ha I'd have to do it. You know, getting the talent um, out the trailer. You know, just, like, a lot of that kind of grunt work, that little small stuff that nobody thinks about what you have to do. Um, I remember a lot of times when I would work in commercials, like, I'd have to take the film after we would shoot and like run it up to uh, like the the like to uh, Photochem, which is like this lab that would like process the film and like you know make it so that it could be edited. And I'm just like, I make like a hundred dollars a day. Y'all trusting me with the entire production budget to like in my raggedy car to drive this over to <laughs> over the hill to the, the studio? It was crazy, but it was just an amazing time because like like college for me, being a production assistant was like being able to just like learn and just seeing like what these different jobs are. Like, I feel like people don't even under realize that if you're a hair stylist and you're working on a film set, you make six figures. Like if you're doing electric, if you're an electrician on a film set, you're making six figures. If you're uh, taking the cords and winding them up and making sure that people don't trip over them, that's a six figure job. Mm. Like there's so many jobs in entertainment that I don't even think people think to try to pursue like I think everybody's like oh I want to be an actor I want to be a director like you could literally if you go to a movie stay for the credits look at every single name that you see and 99% of them people save for the PAs and the assistants are making six figures and do well yeah so what, what was the first film you ended up directing you're grinding through Hollywood mm -hmm. like what is the first film you get to direct so uh, the first movie that I did was called The Last Fall and it was uh, kind of loosely based on my life um so I'll tell that story. So this is like 2011, and uh, the NFL was like on the verge of striking. So there was like this kind of disagreement with the players union and the owners and, uh, you know, and I was just really curious about that uh, conversation because I, I started seeing like a lot of fans talking about, oh, man, like the athletes are greedy. Like why are they trying to like stop a season because they want more money? And um, I just, that was just, like, really intriguing to me. I'm like, y'all really siding with the owners? Like, I don't understand. And yeah. you kind of see that now even, yeah, too. Yeah, still the same thing. And, um, and so I, I did this documentary uh, that never came out that was just, like, basically going to all these different uh, cities that had football stadiums and just trying to, like, basically just trying to show, like, how it affected, like, local business, like, if, like, if a season didn't happen. And I just, just kept hearing these stories, and people were just, like, blaming the fans. And, like, I would always hear things like, oh, man, who, who – you know, what do I care if the players get a million dollars or two million dollars? Like, I ain't never going to see that in my lifetime. Like, what do I care? You know, I just want to be entertained on Sundays. And it was just like, I just kept seeing, like, people approaching athletes, just, like, kind of talking about them like that, they, like, like, A, they weren't human, and B, like, um, 
I don't know, it was just like these really weird conversations. And so, you know, I wanted to, I was in the process of trying to figure out what my first movie was going to be. And um, I ended up uh, becoming really good friends with uh, Ava DuVernay. I actually met her at the uh, Chicago Film Festival in 2010 when her first movie, I Will Follow, came out. And, um, you know, I remember just like seeing her and her process, her movie. She shot that for like $50,000. It all took place in like one location over the course of one day. And growing up, I had never really been privy to like independent film and like, seeing like, oh wow, like you can do movies that aren't like these big action movies and, and things of that nature. You can do like a personal story and that could be like your first feature. And so I was just like trying to figure out this idea and I was like thinking of bad ideas like what she did, like what's something I could do in one location uh, for, for a little bit of money. And she was like, dude, you like, you play in the NFL, like isn't there a story in there somewhere? <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. And, um, and so I just ended up uh, wanting to tell this story about, um, that was loosely based on my life called The Last Fall about just showing how hard it is for like a lot of former pro athletes to transition um, into just like the real world. Like I remember um, when I when I one of the first times I got cut, I tried to like get a job at Target just because I was trying to make the make ends meet. Mm. And like growing up, like I never had a regular job, you know, growing up. So my only thing on my resume was being in the NFL. So I'm like, do I put this on my resume? Do I not for this like raggedy Target job? Like I don't know. And, uh, you know, somebody advised me to put it and, you know, they just looked at me crazy. Like, why the hell you want to work here? You like a former you NFL player. Like this, this has got to be a joke. And so just like situations like that. And I would always talk to my friends that were like transitioning or in the middle of teams. And I would always hear like similar stories, like how hard it was for them to kind of be taken seriously because, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't have like that work experience. And a lot of times you're going to have to come in entry level and kind of work your way up. And so, yeah, my movie was kind of like loosely based on my life and um, kind of starts with like a player being cut and he has to like move back home and, you know, live with his parents and he's trying to figure it out. And uh, Lance Gross and uh, Nicole Bahari starred in it. And it was on Netflix for like five or six years. I think mm. it just got taken off last year, but yeah. it's on like iTunes and all that. So you do that and you do um, Nine Rides. Yeah. Which is completely shot on an iPhone 6. Yeah, yeah. Success. So, yeah. So in uh, 2016, um, so I, l let me tell you a story in between that. So... After my first movie, so my first movie plays at South by Southwest, you know, gets like, you know, does everything you want a first film to do, wins awards, um, the whole nine. And one thing I've noticed in independent film is like a lot of times there can only be one. Like every year there's only like only one person really kind of gets that blessing or like gets the baton passed to them. Like one year it was Ava DuVernay, one year it was Ryan Coogler, one year it was Dee Reese. And like if you're an independent filmmaker or a black filmmaker that did a film in those years, a lot of times what happens is like you're basically right back at scratch. Like you may have gotten a deal, like we sold our movie to uh, Image Entertainment in the whole nine, but you know, the, the pearly gates of Hollywood didn't open up for me. Like I didn't, I, no agents reached out, none of that. So I just kind of found myself back at square one. Like, okay, I did this movie, now I gotta figure out what I wanna do next. And so for my second movie I was writing, uh, it was this uh, project called Game Time Decision. And I wanted to kind of keep it in the football space. And I was tr trying to write a movie about the whole concussion experience. One of my teammates in 2005 was Chris Henry. He, uh, when I was with the Bengals, mm -hmm. uh, I was with him his rookie year. He was like this, 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 this player that kind of had this reputation for being a troublemaker. You know, sometimes you see these young cats and they're about to get drafted. And they're like, uh, we think his stock is going to fall because he like would get in fights and stuff like that in college or whatever. And I knew him and he was like a really cool cat. And what ended up happening was like four or five years after, um, you know, after, you know, I, I got out the league, I, I saw this story that he ended up 
being killed in like this really freak accident. Like he was arguing with his girl and jumped on the back of a truck and she pulled off and he like hit his head and died. And he like never had any history of concussions. No way had ever like, but he'd never been diagnosed at all, not in high school, college or in the league. And, but his mom wanted him to like kind of donate his brain and try to see what was going on with him. And they found out that he had like a high level of CTE. Like he basically, they were saying like he had like Alzheimer's, almost like a 60 year old man. Uh, I'm sorry, not 60, uh, like a 70 year old uh, man with, with like mm. early onset Alzheimer's. And it was just crazy to me. And just seeing that story and then like Junior Seau committing suicide and all these stories of like these players um, uh, that, that were like kind of committing suicide. I was like, man, you know, like, I would love to try to tell this, help this tell the story and try to humanize them. So I wrote this script. Uh, we ended up uh, getting a deal. And we had announced, and then like three days later, Will Smith's movie Concussion gets announced. And so it just <laughs> basically just like totally kills all like our momentum, and we end up having to scrap the movie. And so in that meantime, you know, besides being upset, I was like, man, okay, I put like two, three years of my life into this project. It's not going anywhere now, so I got to figure out what's next. So, you know, I noticed that people were shooting with, uh, they were like shooting these films and these projects with iPhones, you know, like I'm sure a lot of you in the audience right now, like have an iPhone or some type of Samsung phone with like a high level camera on it. And uh, I saw this movie called, uh, what was it called? Uh, Tangerine that came out and it was shot on the iPhone like 4S or something. And it went to Sundance, got a deal, like the whole nine. And I was like, wow, you know, the filmmaker was white though. And I was like, man, like imagine the power, like imagine the power of like a person, to, like a young person of color could see somebody that looked like them that like actually shot a movie with an iPhone too. Because like, I think a lot of times, you know, again, like I was saying before, like sometimes you just have to see somebody that looks like you doing something for you to be inspired and motivated to try to do it yourself. And so like I had this idea about, uh, you know, this movie that kind of takes place in one night about an Uber driver. And, um, and this was like in 2016. And so we had like a $15,000 budget and, um, and we shot it with iPhones. And, it, that, and it's so crazy. Like that was the movie that ended up like giving me the agent, you know, kind of getting like a big deal and everything. And it was like this movie that I just kind of did just for fun. Like it mm -hmm. came together like so quick. We, I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff. And uh, that's how I ended up getting my agent. So you got your agent, and now you're like actually a name in Hollywood at this point. And in in between there, in between there, you somehow became the poster child of Black Twitter. So you have this crazy following for people that don't know. Like when stuff happens in the culture, you gotta follow him because he's the one that is probably setting it off, right, and holding people to the fire and preaching that representation matters. So you get an interview with someone out of nowhere. Who is that? Yeah. So. Um so now this is like 2017. So, you know, uh, how many of y'all in here saw Get Out? I'm, I'm assuming most of, of you. people. Okay. So, you know, Get Out is like this wildly, po wildly popular film. Um, you know, I remember when it came out, I saw it like the day it came out. I was like, you know, got to support, got to support the culture. I'm like, a horror movie about racism? Bet. Um, <laughs> and so, so I see it, you know, and I, like I sent, I sent out some tweet like that same day. Uh, and I like tagged Jordan in it. I was like, man, you know, this is how I felt like seeing that movie because I was like in an all-white theater and I was like applauding all that. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I sent this tweet out to Jordan and he, um, he uh, ended up following me. And, you know, it was just one of those things where like I didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, I bet, cool. Like, that, that's awesome. And, um, you know, so like over the course of like four or five months, like, you know, I'm just like tweeting like normal, doing my, doing my thing or whatever. And um, 
all of a sudden, um, out of nowhere, like I just get this DM from him, and he's like, "Hey, man, uh, I actually showed him the tweet, uh, <laughs> the, the DM earlier. It was like something to the effect of like, "Hey, man, you know, uh, if you if you I don't know if you're in town ever, but you know, would love to grab lunch." I was like, "What?" Like two minutes later, I'm like, "Yeah, let's do it." Like <laughs> this, is, this is my info, and um, it was just one of those things that kind of came out of nowhere because. Um, you know, and I remember at the time, like earlier that week, it was announced that he had like signed a deal with Universal Pictures and that he was like looking to do kind of more movies like Get Out, like that under five million dollar budget kind of. And I was thinking like maybe he was trying to do more in like in that vein. And so uh, we end up meeting and, you know, I'm thinking I'm, I'm, I'm meeting as a filmmaker. I'm thinking like, OK, I'm, let me let me try to pitch you some ideas. You know, there's this there's this idea with such and such. And like halfway through the meeting, he like kind of stops me. He's like, you know what? let's put a pin in that real quick. Like, I want to tell you about what I got going on here at Monkey Paw. And his production company is called Monkey Paw Productions. And basically, like, he was just saying, like, you know, I want to, I want to create this production company that kind of focuses on, like, t- helps to tell our stories, uh, but using genre, you know. And, and, like, a lot of times, like, you wouldn't see us, like, playing a, a lot in those genre spaces. Like, mind you, this is kind of, like, right after Black Panther came out, you know, but before that and Get Out, you know, we really weren't operating a lot of those, like the sci-fi, the horror, the thriller, the, um, you know, Afrofuturism, stuff like that. And so he's like, you know, this is really the space that I want to play in. Like, I want to tell movies and TV shows that, you know, have a social message but are fun, that kind of use comedy, that kind of like, you know, put some medicine with the candy. But, um, but I also want to, you know, just kind of tell, tell our stories and kind of speak to unrepresented voices. And I was like, man, that sounds amazing. Like, you know, good luck with that. You know, like, <laughs> I, I'll definitely be supporting, you know, when, when you put it together. And he was like, nah, man, you know, like, you know, I know we just met and everything, but man, I, I think you'd be a great person to work here at, uh, at, at the company. I was like, what? <laughs> like, we literally just met, like, today. Like, you know, we've, we never had a conversation before this day. And um, you're trying to offer me a job as an exec. I'm like, man, that's crazy. And um, later I found out that, um, so at the time I was uh, doing a residency at BuzzFeed. And like his, his, he's married to Chelsea Peretti, who's like this real famous comedian. And her brother is uh, the owner. He like created BuzzFeed or whatever. And so like he kind of went back and like, you know, did some, did some background check type stuff. Uh, but he ended up offering me a job like on the spot. And um you know, I had never had executive experience um, or any of that, but he was just like, you know what, I, I really just, you know, appreciate your voice. Like, I, you know, I've seen your work. You know, I just think that, uh, you know, we, we really could use somebody like you, you know, working at this company. And it's just been insane. I mean, like, like even today, like our show uh, Last OG is, uh, is playing. Uh, we have an episode of The Twilight Zone that's coming out on Thursday. Obviously, hopefully you guys saw us. Um, you know, we have an HBO series about to come out called Lovecraft Country. Um, you know, it's just been insane, like, just the journey that I've seen him take on in these past couple years. And, I mean, literally, he sold, like, 10 shows straight to series. And he's just, like, really doing it for the culture. And uh, yeah. it's just, like, a really cool opportunity to work there. I mean, well, it's awesome. Again, like, hearing everything that you've been through and your, like, trajectory of how you mm-hmm. got to where you are today to go from you know, living in nine different cities in three <laughs> years to being a part of an Academy Award winning film. Yeah, yeah. I was an executive producer on Black Klansman. You know, I don't know if you guys uh, saw that movie, but uh, yeah, I was, a, I was an EP on that. And uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. So our connection together is Hair Love. Yeah. Now, please tell the story of how Hair Love. Now, for people who don't know, Hair Love is a short film, and I'll let him, without stealing his thunder, Hair Love is a short film. I'll let you say what it's about. Yeah. But the unique thing about it is he raised all the money for this short film by crowdfunding and basically through his social media, 
yeah. that kind of took on like wildfire. It's since partnered with mm-hmm. Sony. Yeah. But please tell the story about how you kind of took control of that because the theme of like your story is yeah. that you don't let opportunities happen to you. You go out and kind of yeah. create them yourself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, like like you're saying, um, and I just always have found myself in this position to where I've always been like close to stuff. Like I've always been like right next to you know the big time athlete or the big time filmmaker, but I was never really that myself. And I just always have found myself having to like go above and beyond just to kind of just even like just to have my voice heard. And so um, I had this idea, you know, a couple years back about. You know, just like an animated short film about an African-American father trying to figure out how to do his hair, daughter's hair for the first time. You know, simple concept, um, but I wanted it to be animated, and basically kind of the thing that would make it animated was, uh, you know, like the daughter's hair has like a mind of its own. So like he's trying to, you know, he's trying to like braid it, and it like starts moving to the side, like, you know, all this kind of really fun, cute stuff. And, um, you know, it was just an idea, and I, I actually sat on it for a couple years, and um, I don't know, I, I there was this thing that uh, I, I, I started seeing um, that, w- that was happening on social media a lot was just, you know, I just kept seeing like how black fathers were getting this like bad rap and like people saying like, you know, black fathers aren't alive, they're not present in their kids' lives. And like the littlest things that they would do would go viral. Like you see a black dad like doing his daughter's hair and it'd be like millions of views and he's on Ellen. I'm like, that, that's like basic <laughs> stuff, you know what I mean? Like, like, does that really warrant like an Ellen appearance or whatever? But I, but but I thought but I but I figured out that it was that the, it was the fact that it hadn't been normalized. Like the reason why people were so intrigued by this concept was that you know everybody thought that you know just just had this image that like black fathers weren't around and that they wouldn't even to the point that they wouldn't even do like simple menial tasks like take their kids to school or like do their daughter's hair and things like that. And so kind of having seen this 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 kind of process going. Um, we ended up doing this Kickstarter campaign. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with like the concept of like Kickstarter or GoFundMe or whatever, but you know, it's basically a, basically a way where you can like raise money for like whatever. Uh, GoFundMe, I mean, God, like that's basically our n- new healthcare system. Anytime something bad happened, you know, <laughs> you end up having to raise money on there. But with Kickstarter, it was more like artist based. So like if you had a movie that you were trying to raise money for or a project, basically like you get, you get all like your materials together. So like this is the artwork. This is what it's about. This is what it's for. And you would like kind of shoot a video of yourself, like kind of explaining what it is that you're trying to do. So like I was telling Hog earlier. So I had, b- before this for both of my features, I'd done Kickstarter campaigns for them, and both times it was like really hard to even raise twenty five thousand. Like I'm like reaching out to Facebook. I'm like, hey, I don't even talk to you in thirty years, but you know, I need some, <laughs> I need 20 for my, for my project. And, you know, it was just like really hard, like literally just reaching out to like a hundred people a day. And the thing about hair love was just, I don't know, it was just this crazy thing. Like, I think it was just like a combination of like an increased social media presence. Like, um, and I, and I think a lot of people look at social media sometimes negatively, but I think like if you're on there, like actually having something strong that you're trying to say, and you're actually like engaging with people and, um, particularly if you're an artist, like it's just a really great way to kind of build up a, a following and an audience organically. And so at the time, I think I had like 100,000 followers on Twitter. And so when I launched this campaign, we were trying to raise like $75,000. And that really wasn't, is not a lot when you're thinking about animation. Cause like, I don't know if you, any of y'all saw like Into the Spider-Verse, but like that movie had like $120 million budget to give you perspective. And so we, Basically, the idea was like to try to raise seventy five thousand, but with the hopes that we would raise more because we needed pr- probably about two hundred to really do it right. Mm-hmm. And so, first day, I published the uh, campaign, 
and I remember I published it, but I didn't tweet it out because I went to work. And by the time I came back, like, it had already raised $2,000. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't even send this to anybody yet. How did they raise this money so, so fast? And, like, Kickstarter had made it, like, a project to love, like, on their main page. So I guess that's how people were following it. And it was just insane. Like, me, I remember me and my manager had this list of, like, all the news outlets and all, like, the looks that we wanted, like, to kind of cover the project. And, like, I kid you not, it was, like, everything from, like, CNN to, like, you know, now this news to AJ+. And I kid you not, within that first week, they all had reached out to us, like, organically. Um, we had this gift that we were offering for a, a picture book, like a children's picture book that was, like, an accompaniment to the, to the short film. Three days into the campaign, like, Penguin Random House reached out, hey, we want to offer you guys a book deal so we can do the book. I'm like, what? Like, like it was, like, literally the most insane experience I've been a part of, of in my life, like, to the point where um, people, like, Hog actually was one of our what uh, was one of our, our backers uh, mm-hmm. at the EP level. So he's he's a producer on the film, um, but like Chance the Rapper uh, donated like the first week. Like we basically raised hit our goal like the, in seven days. We raised seventy five thousand, and so people like Chance the Rapper donated. Chris Rock, Ava DuVernay, um, Chelsea Clinton randomly donated. Wow. Um, Lin Manuel Miranda, Gabrielle Union, D Wade. I mean, like it was just insane, and. Um, it was this thing to where basically at the end of the campaign, we ended up raising $280,000 um, for this campaign in 30 days. And, you know, I think it was just a combination of just like, and at the time, like, so this is 2017. So like Into the Spider-Verse hadn't came out. You know, a lot of these projects that have like these diverse representations and animation hadn't come out. So our thing was just like, you know, we, I, I want to see more of us in these type of projects. Like, particularly in animation, because a lot of times, like, you're going to see these projects with your families. Like, you know, you have, like, little young girls, and, like, what are we saying when we don't have images of ourselves that little young girls can aspire to? You know, it's always, like, this Eurocentric standard of beauty. And, like, just imagine the power of, like, a little five-year-old girl could, like, see herself in a project that she is in a movie theater with with her mom. And, um, you know, it was just, that was kind of, like, always the energy that we try to have behind it. And then, um, so we end up raising that money, we were like kind of diligently like kind of plugging away working on it and then uh a couple weeks ago it was announced that uh sony pictures animation the same studio that did into the spider-verse is uh basically picked up the short film and uh if we can get it done in time fingers crossed uh you'll see the short front you'll see the short film in front of angry birds 2 which comes out august 16th mm. so, yeah. mm-hmm. that's amazing man yeah. so it the, the coolest thing about you, Matt, is that, you know, you spend, like most athletes, your, all your time and energy into being the best athlete you can, and the foundation you set there actually set you up for a completely different path where you actually found your financial stability. Yeah. So right. if you were giving advice to a young Matt Chair or any young athlete um, or anybody that's looking to transition and kind of be more than what people see them as, what would it be? You know, I think... Um I think you just got to do it. You know, I think a lot of times we wait for permission. And um, I, th- I think a lot of times you'll, you'll, you'll waste a lot of time, like, waiting for permission. Um, you know, it's good to do your research and to ask for help and everything. But, you know, one thing that I've always found is that 
a lot of times people when they when they ask for help or advice, they they always reach up. So like young filmmakers, for example, they'll always be quick to, hey, Ava DuVernay, help me with my project. Um, F. Gary Gray, help me out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, they have their own projects and their own ideas that they're working on that they're trying to figure out. You know, they may be able to kick you some quick advice, you know, on the low or whatever. But, you know, if you really are trying to build and try to, you know, build your, your, your community, it's going to happen with the people that you're sitting right next to. What, what ends up happening all the time is like the people that you may be overlooking are the people that you're like, oh, man, I got to try to, you know, get on so I can, you know, you know, I got to kind of get past this person. What ends up happening is all the people that you are like kind of coming up with and you're in the same business with at the same time, you all end up getting promoted together. And so like your boy that was like, you know, a, a office PA. Now he's an executive and he might be the person that ends up hiring you for a job mm-hmm. or you know, one of your friends is now now an actor that blew up. I mean, I think the thing that's so amazing about both sports and entertainment is like, it can like literally happen overnight. But you all, there's also always like a marathon. <laughs> you know, there's always just like this long journey right. that kind of that that people never really speak to either. Like when you see these actors and they get on and you see them, you know, in these big movies, all of a sudden, like I'll use Michael B. Jordan for example. You know, everybody think he was like this like kind of overnight success, but dude's been putting in work since like The Wire, since Friday Night Lights. You know, he had like a really long journey to kind of get to the point where he could be in a movie like Black Panther. And I think, you know, you got to just put in the work and always be humble as you're on the rise because the people that you come up with are going to be the same people that are going to end up uh, hiring you. And you'll be able to hire them as well. That's going to do it for this episode of Branching Out, a special episode of Needing Dough, the podcast, presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen to your shows. It's free, it helps others find the show, and that way, you'll never miss an episode. Thanks again to our partner in this show, Chase. Head over to chase.com to see what Chase has to offer. Our executive producers are myself, TD St. Matthew Daniel, and Ben Adair. And I'm Andrew Hawkins a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man always told me. A penny saved is a penny earned.